It is good to be together. Please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're studying this spring, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew chapter 5. We are in the longest recorded sermon in all the New Testament. Jesus, it's referred to commonly as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we're studying. And uh, I think you can, pi- you can probably find uh, Matthew 5 on page, someone yell it out, uh, in the Black Pew Bible, it's page 810. Thank you. What we find here, uh, as Jesus does unpack this Sermon on the Mount, is part of what we need, which is wisdom to navigate life well. That's very important because Jesus told us that we are, not that we are becoming or that uh, we must produce, but that we are uh, by and through him salt and light in the world. So if we are disciples of Christ, uh, that means that we will encounter uh, real life and real relationships and real problems. And Jesus here is describing uh, in the, 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 uh, the sermon that follows where we are right now, a description of how disciples relate to things like money. Uh, how disciples uh, relate to uh, words and our tongue, uh, you know, relationships like marriage and, and even a relationship with our enemies, which is hopefully not someone we perceive to be our spouse in marriage. <laughs> uh, well, how do we relate to uh, revenge and sexual purity and even emotions? How do we relate to those things? Here's a question. Have you ever wished that you had a different personality? I'm not saying you wish someone else had a different personality. I'm just saying, do you wish that you had, honestly, a different personality? I will say that there are a number of times that I thought, if only I was an introvert. If only I was someone who was calm and reserved and quiet, then I wouldn't struggle with emotions like, like anger. And I wouldn't have to struggle with my pride being on display for other people. There have been times that I've, I've hurt people, I've, I've wounded people because of my personality. And I thought to myself, I just want to give up. I, I, I'll never change. Why can't people, sometimes when you feel that way, you feel guilty. You say, come on, why can't people just accept me the way that I am? But then I have to realize that many people do. <laughs> many of you do. Thank you. Fact is, God loves me where I am. God loves you where you are. Uh, but if you are a disciple, God wants to change you. And God does want to to grow and shape and fashion us in certain ways. In Christ, God does love us unconditionally, and yet he wants to still challenge and grow us. The more I've walked with people over the years, the more I've walked with people seeking to be disciples of Jesus, I understand struggles, regardless of personalities. At the same time, anger can manifest itself, and people are introverts and extroverts. Greed can manifest itself, and people have plenty of money or no money. Uh, It's not like that. It's deeper. Sometimes anger can be expressed uh, through screaming, yes, uh, but it also can be uh, expressed internally, suppressing that in bitterness. Well, let's go to our good teacher, the rabbi Jesus, uh, who teaches us about the king and the kingdom and part of the characteristics. I know you just sat down, but if you would one more time, uh, let's show honor to God's word in Matthew, beginning verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think, Jesus says, that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21, you've heard it said that to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask uh, for some help. Uh, our Father, our, our Heavenly Father, um, there are some difficult things to understand um, in this passage, but there's even more difficult things to do and walk out in application. Uh, so I would ask that you'd grant us your spirit, that we might have a humble view of ourselves and a hopeful view of people around us, a hopeful view by faith of your glory of your grace and goodness, we ask for help right now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's three questions that I, I want to answer from the text, or that I think the text prompts us to maybe ask. The first is, how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? Uh, the second would be uh, this question listed there in the order of service. What is, uh, what is the heart of the matter? Not A, but the heart of the matter. The last question is, is that what, what's an illustration of this? Or, or uh, where is an illustration of this? So first of all, how does Jesus view the Old Testament? You know, verse 17 says, do not think, don't, don't assume Jesus is saying that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, anytime you see that turn of phrase, by the way, the law or the law and the prophets, uh, by this, Jesus is simply saying uh, all of the Hebrew Bible, all of the Old Testament, all that is promised and all that is uh, commanded. I'm not, I'm not abolishing that, Jesus is saying. I am fulfilling it. It is coming into focus. In fact, he says in verse 18 that not even so much as a, a, a dot could be set aside. That, that's referring to, uh, in the Hebrew alphabet, even the, the smallest strike of a letter. Uh, that, that little strike, that little um, you know, dash is like a, the size of a comma. It's like the difference between, in our, uh, you know, in our uh, alphabet, the difference between a C and an E. It's, it's very, very minute. Uh, that little uh, cross. Jesus is saying none of that can pass away. There were many times uh, that in Jesus' day as he was teaching and the way that he was acting and those who he was interacting with, that people thought, is he trying to relax? Is he trying to change? Is he trying to be a, a rebel, a revolutionary with respect to our tradition and the law? And Jesus would say, no, you, you're, mis- you're, 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 you're misunderstanding me. I'm going to challenge your view of the law, but I'm not doing away with the law at all. Especially when Jesus, though, would go and interact in his 
you know, relationships, he would be with people that were considered uh, the lawbreakers, the sinners, the tax collectors, prostitutes, those who were accused of being uh, drunkards. Uh, that, that lifestyle for many, you know, challenged their traditional Jewish interpretation of God's law. He even seems to repeal God's law at different turns and times when he heals people on the Sabbath day of rest. When he says, we'll read this later in Matthew 15, that uh, all, all food is now clean. There isn't a, a subset of dietary law that's, uh, that is uh, unclean. Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling the law. But what does that mean? Well, it's not merely that he is obeying the law. Uh, and he indeed does that all the way to and through. Or he's not simply merely saying that he and all the prophecies, minor and major prophets, were making predictions that he, the Messiah, is fulfilling in the kingdom. That's true, too. The law of God is a, a holy revelation. It's, a, it's a, a description of his very character. And yes, there are parts of the law that no longer uh, apply given the context. We, we don't apply the civil law. We, we're not, we don't live under a nation of, of a theocracy in Israel. Uh, we, we know that, that there are parts even also of the ceremonial law we refer to that had a purpose, that were good, that were wise, that were part of God's intent. But that was to show and, and to present types of, of sacrifice, the final sacrifice being Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. So we don't continue to offer those uh, and observe that part of the ceremonial law. Jesus is the perfect lamb. Jesus is saying all of that was entirely relevant and beautiful, and it reveals things, both Old Testament law and the prophets, but they meet and they have their completion and their culmination in me. Now that would be, um, (laughs) how do you say this? That would be uh, exceedingly arrogant, Uh, and egotistical for someone to say that so shamelessly if it wasn't true. The person who's who's actually setting aside God's law or, uh, you know, disregarding it or disrespecting God's law isn't Jesus. He's actually turning it and saying, it's actually you, those who would say, that the, the religious zealots of the, of the day who are trying to obey God's law externally, but then also adding to it, loading on different traditions, saying this is what it means to fulfill the law. And then as a result, they're saying we can climb our way and earn uh, God's favor and salvation. That's to disrespect the law. We don't relate uh, to... we. We, we have a responsibility. Obviously, God's law is not something that we get to tinker or change. But we do not relate to God through the law. We relate to God through Christ. And yes, we have his law. His law is a gift to us. It conveys part of his character. We know that it is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. It gives us Wisdom, it is a gift. And when it's properly uh, understood and what it points to and how it's to be applied, the law of God is a beautiful thing. Jesus is not setting it uh, aside. So then what's the heart of the matter? Jesus has already made it clear that he's not aiming for a a lower view, uh, a lesser view of the law. He demands much from his disciples. But the essence of that is not a legal reality. 
They, there are specific goals and motivations that Jesus has in mind, less so than the, the finer, minute uh, prescriptions of behavior. We, we know that the scribes and the Pharisees are missing the point of the law because they want to, as I, I mentioned, cultivate more traditions to lay on to that in more precision. Jesus, if, if anything, is simplifying things. I mean, this is clearly not an entire code of, of ethics. He's drilling at the heart of the matter. Jesus is saying that by our righteousness is not about how we relate to the law. Our, our righteousness is found in how we relate to God and people made in God's image around us that he's put into our lives. It's more relational than it is legal, if anything. So then how, if you look at the text there again, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees or the scribes, how is that even possible? You might argue, might, you might pose the question, verse 20, how is it that we would exceed that observance of the law and such righteousness? Well, the way that we would do that is by understanding the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. Let me be more specific. Jesus desires that his disciples, we, would do the right things for the right reasons. Not out of resentful duty or, or even things like, why would, we, why would we be conscientious to observe or do things that either others or we understand God to say what is right and wise? Why do we do that? Jesus is saying, we shouldn't do it out of things like pride or fear. I'm going to protect my good name. I'm going to, you, you know, it's like I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to protect myself by being good and obedient. Listen, there's plenty of people in the world that haven't done things that are exceedingly horrible and bad, relatively speaking to others. There have been people that haven't done bad, bad things, but it's only because they didn't have a chance to. The, the wall was too high. The, the, you know, there was something uh, in the way. There was someone, there was an auditor looking over their shoulder. The way that we surpass the righteousness, verse 20 he's saying, is by having a heart for God. Does that make sense? Hopefully, let me just bring a finer point to this. Following the law of God out of love for God and love for our neighbor made in God's image is the way that we have a righteousness that is pleasing to God. It's having a heart for God. What would be a good illustration of this, right? If the law of God is not set, uh, is not set aside, not diminished, uh, you know, that it is important and it's driving at the heart of the matter, where would, be, where would we see a place where that would show up or, or make manifest? Real time, real life. Well, we're about to see six different instances where Jesus now is going to apply the law. You're going to see it. And in fact, you can even, you, you can even just look at it from uh, the two pages that you maybe have open here. Again, it, just again, it, it, there's six times over. It says, you have heard it said, blank, 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 but I say to you. Does that make sense? Like he, He's going to say this with respect to marriage. And, and next week, uh, maybe it's not PG. It's, we're talking about lust. Uh, but this week he's saying, you have heard it said, and this is where he's going to drill in on the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You've heard it said, verse 21, you shall not murder and whoever murders is liable unto uh, judgment. 
Murder, uh, you know, whether you're in the court of, I mean, doesn't matter what court you're in. Most people throughout time and culture and uh, human history have all said, yeah, uh, murder is a bad thing. And, uh, and people being judged for murder is a good thing. Uh, there is something called justice, and we want that for those who would. But as wild, widely accepted and understood as this uh, moral code and expectation, this norm is to be a law that does indeed protect people, and we want it to protect people, Jesus probes deeper still. Because D- Jesus is going to illustrate the heart of the matter because he's going to drill down on the ugliness of the pre-murderous disposition that sometimes, well, almost always lies behind the physical violent act of murder. In some ways, it shouldn't surprise us because, you know, murder is not typically random. Whether it's cold uh, and, and calm and collected and calculated or whether it's, it's hot and red and rage-filled, that violence, here's the difference. When we have righteous, you know, when you think about it, uh, you know, is, is all anger bad? Jesus is drilling down into these deeper uh, places. Let me just read again for us the text in verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So in other words, if it is contempt and hatred and this, this anger towards others that would provoke us to act on that and be violent, that means that even the motivation and that hatred and that anger is also culpable. Whether we act on that or not, whether we spew things out of our mouth or not, whether we give someone that nasty look or punch someone in the face, uh, we, we understand. We understand that even our heart's attitude and posture here is not pleasing to God. You may say, but is all anger bad? Well, no, it's not. And James is, is very clear. He says we should be slow to anger. Didn't say don't be angry. Ephesians 4, one of the passages I highlight, Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. He didn't say don't sin by becoming angry. He just said, hey, when you get angry, uh, you know, watch out. <laughs> you know, that, yeah, that can lead places. But here's the difference. When we get angry, oftentimes, not always, we don't have a righteous indignation. Yes, Jesus does. We know that. But when Jesus gets angry, it is tied to grief. It's grief over sins like unbelief and hypocrisy and injustice against others. Does that make sense? So in other words, he's becoming angry not about personal offenses or his own mistreatment, Jesus is upset and angry for the sake of others. Dan Doriani, who's a New Testament scholar, says, our anger is typically just the opposite. In contrast to to God, Jesus' anger, our anger is typically, not always, but typically just the opposite of God's. We burn with anger at petty offenses to our honor. We scream at referees whose whistle harms our favorite team. We become offended at minor snubs, minor acts of disrespect. We rage at people who cut us off in traffic or squeeze yellow lights until they turn red. We are quick to anger at personal offenses, but slow to anger over sin that offends God and mankind. Do you see this? Jesus is taking it just 
a bit further, a bit deeper. Jesus even is saying, what about those casual uh, insults and having that, uh, that sense of contempt towards others when we label them or curse them? Verse 22, again, you're liable to the council. Whoever says fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So what is he saying here? Uh, it's again, it's that, that contempt. The word here is for that insult is raka in the original. And it really essentially is an insult to someone's mind. It means you're a numbskull. Uh, you're, you know, you, 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 you're, you're intellectually inferior. But then there's this other word that is mentioned here, fool. And that is going even further, insulting with a, a degree of contempt for the person's very heart and character. In other words, it would be entirely unfitting. It would be entirely a violation of the sixth commandment to look at someone and say, I think you're a stupid idiot and you're worthless. Why did that come off of my mouth so easily? Why is that been said? Why is that said amongst siblings? Why is that said by Parents to children and children to parents and husbands to wives and you get the picture. Our language, our condescending words, they can murder a soul. Some of you have to live with the impact of that. I I mean, I'm sad to say, I, I mean, in very pointed ways, things were said to you and no one apologized for it. No one sought reconciliation. No one sought to amend things and repent. To absorb that and forgive, I I don't know. I I, I do, but I don't. Are we guilty of murder? Is this that serious? Well, the answer is yes and yes. In fact, so much that Jesus is saying, this is so important that before you go and do something really important like Worship God and bring your gift to the temple uh, and, and, and do this sacred religious duty. If on the way you realize that you're, you have enmity, and that's a two-way street. Someone's, someone's offended you or you realize you've offended someone else, that it is an urgent matter. It is an important deal to Jesus here that we would go and make peace to the, to the best of our ability to be reconciled. We should seek peace with an angry brother. And this whole discussion of dealing with your accuser, you know what he says here in verse 25, before you even reach the judge, while you're on the way, he's in essence saying, it would be wise of us as disciples of Christ to de-escalate, I know that's kind of a buzzword, but you get the picture, that we would not ramp it up and provoke our brother to further anger. We would rather, and we would be wise, regardless of our guilt or innocence, that we would seek to hold back a brother or sister who's going to do even more things under the banner of anger. Even our adversary, we don't want our adversary to carry out acts of anger. The illustration that, uh, that Jesus is giving here is you get the picture of like a debtor's uh, you know, prison and uh, a judge that's dealing with uh, people who are indebted. The illustration of an unpaid debt, or at least the adversary thinks that you have this unpaid debt, We should not retaliate. We shouldn't insult. We should love them from the heart as much as we're able. And that's important because it is Paul that says in Romans 12, 18, 
that uh, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Anger uh, is a lot like a red light on the dash of your car. That light doesn't really mean anything. It's uh, unless you're trying to pass inspection, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, that red light may or may not mean anything, but it's it's not the light. That's it's what's potentially behind it. What's being indicated by that anger? I want to say this um, as someone who has uh, lots of experience struggling with anger. Uh, it is not um, an allergic reaction. Do you know what I mean? Think about this just for a moment. I know we're tempted. We're inclined to say, boy, it'd be great if I could just get these people out of my life. If I just had a different set of circumstances, a better work environment, less stress, better communication with my spouse, uh, then anger would never crop up. No, anger has a root and it's a lot deeper than any irritant or allergen. Okay, you know what I mean? You, 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 you can't outrun these things. It's at the root of our, our being, our control center, our, our heart. What is governing our heart? The very root of our being. Anger reveals something other than the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness and hope and truth of God governing and guiding our hearts. It shows up at the times when I want something or... I wanted something and it was taken from me. What I desire has become supreme. By the way, nothing wrong with wanting respect. Nothing wrong with wanting to be honored. Nothing wrong with wanting to be appreciated. Nothing wrong, you can fill in the blank. Those are legitimate desires. There's nothing wrong with wanting safety for your children. Okay, I said it. There's nothing wrong with that. Wanting gratitude from others, but when we don't get it, or how and what we want and don't get it, we become mad and our desires become demands and we turn into judges. Sometimes rather self-centered judges, if I could just give a personal testimony, I, I, it, it, we need judges, but sometimes when we're self-appointed, we put ourselves in the positions of judge and we actually enjoy it. We're excited because we're angry. We want to administer some form of justice. We want, we've been hurt. We've been offended. We've been inconvenienced. Whatever. We want others to hurt and suffer as a result. I'm guessing that some of the things I'm saying are not revolutionary that are not that foreign to your own personal experience. And Jesus understands this. We lack mercy sometimes, I do, because we forget the mercy of God towards us in Christ. I also forget the fact that I've been guilty of the very same things that I'm upset, maybe even worse than the things that I'm very much upset about. It's when we don't heed the wisdom of Romans 12. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think of yourselves with sober judgment. Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it's a glory to overlook an offense. <clears throat> why don't I overlook, why do we not overlook offenses? Well, there's a whole, whole variety of answers to that. 
I was helped many years ago uh, by a, an article called Unrighteous Indignation. Frederica Matthews Green writes this, and this is in 2000. So we're, we're ahead of cancel culture here, folks. But she says, of the seven deadly sins, anger has long been the one with the best box costumes. True? Think about it. Seriously. The best box of costumes out of the seven deadly sins. Anger. Well, when the guy in the car next to us rages at you, he's dangerous. When you rage at him, well, you're just. You can actually, you usually recognize the results of anger, especially in others, as destructive and evil. But there are times when we think of our anger as justified, we say as a kind of fuel to fight injustice. There are times when we think it is holy. It's not just the world that thinks this way. There's never a time to cultivate delicious anger just for the thrill of it. I've been thinking about why this kind of anger feels so good, she writes, It is, I believe, the mask of self-righteousness, and we desperately hunger to know that we are righteous. All humans suffer from the free-floating guilt because, well, we're guilty. We're all sinners, and that's the only, and there's, we're all sinners, and that's who Jesus came to save. We, along with everyone else, itch to find some grounds upon which to stake our own righteousness one way, is to resolve this ang- One way to resolve this anxiety is by finding someone else who is worse than us. We can judge them, unload our indignation, and feel assured of our comparative righteousness. That comparative righteousness does not work itself out. Um, sometimes we feel like we just need to vent our anger about situations and people because we look at others and we say, Wow, how can, how can he react that way? Look at the way she mistreated me. I can't fathom that someone would say those things. And the subtext of it all, let's be frank, let's be honest, is I would never do something like that. The whole comparative righteousness, it fails miserably. Now, I, I was reminded just, just we're aware of how anger works and how it embarrasses us and, uh, and our conscience. And, and so drilling down to the heart, not just staying at the level of the sixth commandment. Yep, never murdered anybody. Moving on. But drilling down. I, I heard an interview recently. Uh, but it was from several years ago because she's di- since died in 2016 or 17. But there's a woman, a missionary, famous missionary Totally worth your time to do some reading on. Her name is Helen Rosevere, and she was a missionary um, who, who uh, lived in the Congo. And she set up a hospital. She was, she was a, a British uh, you know, missionary uh, and headed to the Congo. She's faced all kinds of violence and, 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 and harsh treatment. If anyone has got a reason for a righteous indignation, she'd be one of them. But she reflects on the early days of going to college, going to med school. She was lonely. Uh, you know, she's, she sees this note, hey, if you need someone to connect to, come to this, this dorm room at such and such a time. And she shows up, and there's Christians there. And they're studying the Bible. And they're fellowshipping. And she develops a friendship with these Christians. She thought all along she was a Christian. Uh, but she began to study God's word and realized that she wasn't. And, uh, and she had a conscience. She understood what's right and wrong. And, and she confessed. I had a, uh, Helen says, I had a terrible temper. 
And one night in front of these people, uh, after knowing him for some time, she just erupted and had a, a, a temper tantrum of some sort. And uh, she was embarrassed and she could tell that they were shocked. And she went back to her room and she said, one of the verses that I had written down, I saw it on the wall and it said this, and it's right out of Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. And she said at that moment, feeling the conviction of my sin, I knew I needed God. I needed his hope. I needed his forgiveness. I needed God. And she surrendered and became a follower of Christ. The world says, and I'm almost finished, and I want to just give you some takeaways. The world says that whatever problem you're trying to fix in self-improvement in your life, here's the popular mantra. And I don't, don't tell me you have not heard, smelt, or seen this. I know you have. Here's the deal. Whether you're trying to deal with anger and emotions like that or addiction, the world so commonly will look at you and say, the problem is outside and the solution is inside. The problem is from without and the solution is from within. And Jesus is saying at this particular time and turn so clearly exactly the inverse of that. The problem is from within and the solution is only from without. And let me just dr drill down on this a bit more because that's what Christ-centered biblical thinking says. The problem is us and we don't have the solution or the power to remedy or heal it. Here's what we need. We need to repent. We need to rejoice. We need to remember. And then we need to repeat. All right. Here, let me just rehearse these. Repent at a root level. Repent that sometimes we lack the self-control with respect to things like anger and those emotions because we want control. I could say all day long that I'm angry at my, ch my children for disobeying me, but what I really am angry about is you got in the way of my peace and quiet and productivity. So I need to repent at a heart level. I wanted things my way, and that's why I got angry. Forgive me. We need to repent at a heart level because it's only in submitting to God's control that he can put all people and all the, all the trials that God put in our life. Only submitting to God's control that I'll ever have any self-control. The second thing I would say is rejoice. Rejoice that while we're quick to be angry, God is slow to anger. Exodus 34 says it clearly. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, after giving the law to the people. And the Lord, uh, the Lord said, uh, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is a gift from God to us who surrender. We need to rejoice that the, the gift, and we, this is true always, right? The gift derives from the heart of the giver. And when God gives us these good gifts, think about the heart of the giver. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave. Aren't you so glad that the law of God shows what he wants from us, which is that we would be just what we read two weeks ago in the Beatitudes, pure in heart. And that's who our God is. That's who Christ is. He loves us from a heart and then he gives. So that's rejoicing. Repenting at a heart level, rejoicing in the fact that God is unique 
in these ways in Jesus. And then remember, the last, this other thing I would say is remember that God has every grounds to be offended, angry toward us, frankly, full of wrath. He is certainly more righteous and altogether holy in every way. And that verse that I read from Exodus 34, 6, it goes on to say that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. Yet, however, for those who repent and trust by faith, God's wrath is satisfied. His anger towards your sin and my sin has been poured out on Jesus, who is our substitute. It's the very reason that Jesus says two things when Jesus is on the cross. And these popped out at me uh, today. First is this one. There's two things that Jesus says on the cross that shows that that I I ought to love and surrender to him. The first thing he says that stands out with respect to this is, Father, all these people who have beaten me, mocked me, scorned me, that I'm up here dying for, Father, first thing he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then the second thing he says is what? My God, Father, why have you forsaken me? except that he is taking upon himself our debt, our sin. Relationally speaking, this means that I and you who are in Christ, we don't have to go in anger to collect our debts and those debts against us because Jesus has paid all of my debts and I'm humbled and I'm grateful and I'm forgiven and that is liberating. So, repent at a heart level, rejoice, remember, and then repeat. Would you pray with me? And at the close, we are gonna say together the Lord's Prayer. So take the order of service and you'll see it printed there. Lord God Almighty, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us. As a result of your word, your love, your commands, what you desire, what you promise. Would you help us to heed the wisdom to carry it, Lord, to places where we live, to carry uh, these realities into the places where we struggle and hurt, especially with emotions and motivations and actions and reactions, all that surround anger. Lord, without you, we're hopeless in our own ways and our own efforts, but with you, we do have resurrection hope. Thank you for Jesus who absorbed the penalty and the guilt that our angry words and our angry deeds and thoughts deserve. Lord, would you watch over uh, us this week, uh, be with families as they travel, give rest and refreshment, Lord, to students and teachers and administrators. Lord, we think about the world. We pray that you would restrain evil in the world. Pray that you provide for our church, Lord, for our mission, for our, our, our needs, financially, for us a new space to worship. Lord, please provide. Watch over, Lord, those who are sick, especially, Lord, we lift up our precious sister Dottie as she struggles. We ask that you would keep her healthy and strengthen her as she moves towards this surgery on Friday and be with her surgeons and her providers. They would have skill and wisdom and compassion. We pray all these things through Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray, saying together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be 